Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend, my co-host, and hopefully not getting run down by a flying car, Adam. (laughs) Uh, Flying car. I was trying to understand the reference. Was it from this episode with the car that flies? Uh, or was it a Back to the Future reference from the end of Back to the Future? I wasn't sure. It could have been both. Which, I was trying to be a little yeah. subtle. I was trying to be a little dualistic yeah. with the with the you know the pun there or whatever. It works so, both ways. Yes, yeah. it had a dual meaning for you, sir. I like it. Thank you. Well, it's great to be back for this penultimate episode entitled "The Bite." Yeah, we love the word penultimate, and so far for all of our series, I think we've loved the penultimate episodes. They live up to I at agree, least part yeah. of their name. Ultimate goodness is what this is. Ted Lasso, Halt and Catch Fire, Stranger Things. I believe What If was a pretty good penultimate episode. I think we enjoyed it as well it for was, season one. Yeah. So, yeah, I will say five for five, six for six, however many series we've covered or seasons of series. <laughs> right. But yes, this did not disappoint. I absolutely love this one. It's such a great episode that not only sets up the finale, but in our last episode, I think we both talked about some of our disappointment in the tone of the episode, how things felt a little kind of a means to an end. I think that's kind of how I would summarize my experience. This, it was as if every scene felt important. Every scene had magic in it. And by the time we get to the very last moment, I was just sort of on pins and needles asking, how is this going to end? And please don't make me wait as long as I'm waiting to watch the finale. (laughs) So listeners... As you know, I try to watch the next episode of whatever we're covering the night of. I'm going to tape my eyelids open to watch as much as I can because I know this is going to be a lengthy conversation and I'm okay with that, but I definitely am anxious to get into the finale at least through half of it. I saw that the runtime was like an hour and 20 minutes, so if I can get through 40 minutes, I'll feel like a good man, but that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about the bite and I'm ready to get into it if you are. Yeah, and I'll just add that this is once again written and directed by the Duffer Brothers, which I think is part of why it's more successful than the last episode, or even the last two episodes, I would say. This kind of brings back the show to the kind of tone that I think we expect it to be. Something was just a little, as you said, a little off and kind of went a little silly at times, a little too far into... I wouldn't call it slapstick, but, you know, kind of, you know, like we said, with the Russians and sort of their behavior, it felt just a little cliche at times and not quite fitting with some of the shows that we've seen thus far in this season. So, and I think that might have something to do with the director. And again, I'm not blaming it on the director, but the Duffers clearly know their characters. They know the tone of the show and they get to also take it home, which is also a great thing, you know, when you get to do yeah. the final two episodes. And I would say this is definitely the first in what is essentially a two-part finale. And there's no question, one of the strongest episodes since the very beginning of the season. Well, and I think you make a good point that I recently have been listening to a podcast on Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night. 
in conjunction with that, listening to a podcast on the West Wing because I'm kind of in a wet. I'm, I'm in an Aaron Sorkin kick right now, so I'll watch a couple episodes of Sports Night, maybe watch an episode of West Wing, and then just listen to the conversation. But one of the things that's brought up is, I think in general, when you have like a writer director, a writer creator that spearheads a lot of the writing early on in a series, when they take a break, when they are working on something else, and you bring in a guest writer particularly for the writing itself. So I know that there's definitely separation of direction and writing. We always kind of attribute everything to James Cameron or to <laughs> put your director here. And I don't think that's completely fair credit-wise to the rest of the team because writers write, directors direct, cinematographers cinematog, if whatever the verb is. And everybody's <laughs> involved in making the production what it is. I think when you have a series that the Duffers are spearheading, show running, writing, directing... And they're always on the front end and back end. I think that's something consistent that we've seen is that they'll always yep. do the first two and the last two. Sean Levy always does three and four. I've looked ahead without reading mm-hmm. synopses. Sean Levy directs three and four every season. I think there's sort of like a gimmick there that they're running through. But I think that what I was listening to on these podcasts is that you sort of notice when there's a change, the challenge is that you don't notice the change. And so for instance, right. the West Wing, I want to say Sorkin wrote the first seven episodes. The eighth episode was written by someone else. Ironically, the episode that got me into the West Wing was that particular episode. So I ended up watching the first seven after that and just falling in love with the show. But there is, if you know what to look for, which is a testament to the writer that replaced Sorkin on that episode, there are some tonal differences. There's a little bit of a less rhythm and it's less Sorkin-esque. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of is a little bit more obvious in these previous two episodes. And like you said, it's not a knock on the director or the writer, but there is a challenge when you're trying to fill the boots of a creative team that knows what they want. And I think that there's something smart and strategic about letting them anchor each season, letting them start and finish and then letting the story progress with sort of an outline, storyboards, having directors in as much as they can keep the tone, keep the wit similar, but then finishing it off with something strong. And so I'm glad that they do that because I think if you have inconsistency throughout, you really create something that feels kind of messy. And I've never felt that Stranger Things was messy, but I think this is the first time with our last episode that I felt things were a little bit more off than normal, and in particular, Russian. So if you take the comparison of last episode and this one, I felt the threat of the Russian yes. presence. I felt the threat inside the fair and the the fight with Hopper. I didn't feel that when the kids were getting interrogated and being asked, who do you work for? This felt like, okay, the Russians are serious. There's a, there's a threat here. Right. And there's stakes. There's loss. That's what I think was missing. Again, that's okay, as long as we get to where we are now, which is, ah, yes, a breath of fresh air, maybe just needs a little bit of a recharge, get that flux capacitor fluxing, whatever you need to do, and now we can really get into it. I think we can both just unashamedly say that part of the reason this episode works is that there's Back to the Future stuff happening in it, so we'll get into that. But Absolutely, yes, yeah. That was, if there's nothing else good about this episode, those moments really were like highlights for me. Yeah, I agree that it, this is um, a far more ominous episode by comparison to the last one. You really feel the stakes. And as a result, it just pulls you in a lot more. You feel much more connected with the characters and much more empathetic to what they're going through. 
So yeah. let's move right into this much better episode. <laughs> <laughs> the cold open gets us to the fun fair. I love, love this. We got a little taste of it in the last episode, but now it's like on full display. All I could think of at this point was how great it would be to be an extra on this set. Like these are working rides. These are vendors that were oh, probably yeah. selling corn dogs and what cow ears or whatever it was funnel cake. I, I would think that the yeah. production budget allowed for them to say, let's just have a carnival. Let's call it the fun fair and let's film it while we can do this. So to be an extra, I think would have been absolutely fantastic. It's accented with ROCK in the USA. Couldn't have picked a more perfect song for a 4th of July carnival setting. And you get the Hawkins high marching band playing behind mayor Klein who knows how to direct traffic. He just kind of waves his hand and they just go. Now doesn't that just lift your spirits? Which I thought was absolutely yeah. fantastic. Gotta say, Adam, love him or hate him, Klein knows how to do fireworks right. Like this was pretty impressive for Hawkins, Indiana, a 4th of July fireworks display and fair. So if there's one thing redeeming about Klein, he knows how to put on a party. And that's why his name is above Funfair. It says Mayor Klein presents Funfair. So he's taking the credit. (laughs) (laughs) One, uh, yeah, like it's a movie or something. Like Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins or something else. (laughs) So clearly he he wants the credit. But, you know, you mentioned John Cougar Mellencamp, as he was known at the time. Uh, this song, which I love, and it's a perfect song, especially for the 4th of July, as you said, which, by the way, this whole season, including this episode, dropped on Netflix on July 4th, 2019. So this would have been the perfect episode to watch on 4th of July evening back in 2019. But yeah, the the little thing I caught, a little mistake, is that song R.O.C.K. in the USA was actually a part of the 1985 album Scarecrow, which didn't come out till August. So somehow they got a sneak peek of it (laughs) in Hawkins, Indiana. Well, you know, Klein's got influence, so he knows he knows how to get that stuff early. He knows the cougar. Yeah, he does know the (laughs) cougar. He uses that little wink and that smile, that politician look to get what he needs. And in this case, he got an early copy of R.O.C.K. in the USA. I was also uh, thinking that when we see the marching band, Robin often talks about how she's part of it. I would imagine that she should be in this performance, but she's clearly trapped in an underground Soviet bunker. So she's (laughs) missing out on the 4th of July celebration. Excuses, excuses, Robin. You should be there. (laughs) Maybe she's taking the summer off anyway because she's working at Scoops Ahoy. That's true. Well, atop the Ferris wheel, we've got Karen... And Mr. Wheeler, Ted, I think is his name, Ted Wheeler, and their daughter, they're having some fun. They get on top, they get in the Ferris wheel. And I think it's funny, I know how a Ferris wheel works. It's very slow, and it stops. It's very slow, and it stops. And so when they get to the top, I'm like, why is Ted Wheeler freaking out? But apparently that's not the case, (laughs) that she actually slipped the guy, um, I guess a fiver or something, to get a fantastic seat for the fireworks. And good on you, Karen. I mean, that's that's not a bad idea, and they actually do. They get the best seat in the house of the fair. I would not mind that seat, personally, because I think that's a that's always a challenge, is when there's fireworks going on locally here, it's like, where do you find the best seats where you're not crowded by tons of people? 
And so there's like secret right. spots all around the capital city where we can see the 4th of July festivities. So I think Karen was really smart to do this, even though Ted was like, I'm afraid of heights and I need to get back to my comfy chair that's on the ground where I could sleep. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's clearly not enjoying this. He's he's doesn't seem like the type of person that really likes to do much more than his job and come home and sit on his uh, his lazy boy. That's like his, yep. his routine. Going out to a fun fair is not fun for Ted Wheeler. <laughs> Meanwhile, the cold nope. open actually is pretty short this episode. Um, it is. Their daughter is looking out and she sees the trees moving and she's trying to tell her parents. And they're like, no, look at the fireworks. And she's like, no, look at the trees. They're moving. And of course, we know what that is because we know what happened in the last episode. This creature popping out of the great in the steelworks. And now it's loose in the forest, which is not what you want to have <laughs> in Hawkins, Indiana on the 4th right. of July is a creature running through the forest with lots of people around. And that gets us to the credits. No. It was really, really like as a tight cold open. I have expected it to kind of move into what we saw afterwards. But in this instance, it was just, uh, it was just that. Then we get the credits. No, I think it was actually smart because it kind of ended the cold open on a bit of a, cliffhanger like the creature is loose it's coming towards is it coming towards the fair where is it going and so now we get to transition back to hopper's cabin which by the way if they're seeing the fireworks from the cabin it can't be as remote as i thought it was (laughs) it's they're clearly in somewhat close proximity to this fun fair and everything going on yeah, it's just hidden behind trees. It's just like covered up. Right. It's, it's probably like maybe a quarter of a mile in, but it's like all right. trees and you can't see it. It's a great view, though. I mean, you got Hopper's cabin, his uh, yeah. porch. I mean, for the future, if there's a second great spot, it's Hopper's porch as opposed to being atop a, a Ferris wheel. So Ted would probably love that, being on the ground and at a distance right. away from uh, from these things. I think Ted Wheeler would rather be watching it on TV, but... I think so. And falling asleep watching it on TV. So like New Year's (laughs) Eve is like his favorite holiday because he can watch the fireworks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Elle is uh, giving a summary of what she heard and she saw what we've seen. Uh, Nancy hears something outside besides the fireworks. Jonathan's like, it's just the fireworks. And she's like, dude, you don't know it. I know. I'm Nancy Drew. I'm Drewing it. She realizes that the Mind Flayer knows where they are. And here comes the creature. It's like plowing through the trees. I'm like, how do you prep for this? I mean, this thing looks to be going really fast. So how in the world are you going to be doing what we see you doing later on so quickly? But, you know, I'm going to suspend my disbelief and say that, okay, we're going to get these actions going real quick. Yeah, it's like a freight train moving through the forest. And uh, Elle, frankly, looks scared here compared to... Other times where she's, you know, got her brave action pose <laughs> going. And I think she's, you know, clearly not sh- quite sure what's what's happening here. And this is uh, this is new territory for her. It is. Then the episode moves to the Russian underground. And I'm grateful because this is the last instance of the Russian underground that we see. More remnants of the last episode. Yeah. Dustin and Erica, they've gotten Steve and Robin, who are still high as kites. They get... <laughs> onto the elevator of death again i think if i could summarize my thoughts is that the russian underground is where suspension goes beyond suspension of disbelief and we get into just (laughs) absurd it's beyond disbelief right because 
Dustin has a key card, but where does he get it? I did not see him steal a key card. I'm assuming he tasered dude and grabbed the key card. Or maybe it was the comms guy. It could have been the comms guy that um, Steve knocked out. That's my only guess, but I, di- I didn't actually go back to see if he picked up a key card. That's my only thought there. And it will stay a thought because I think that's what we have is just a thought. It never gets shown in yeah. my view. So he gets a key card. <laughs> they activate the elevator. And all I could think of at this point was Steve and Robin must have had so much fun filming this scene. Like they probably just ad-libbed a lot of what they were doing. You know, Steve like messing with Dustin's face and just kind of some of the lines about being high. Like, Steve, are you drugged? How many times, Dad? I don't do drugs. It's only marijuana. This isn't funny, okay? I need to know what they did to you. Are you going to die on us? I really think that some of this stuff, especially like with the cart that Steve was surfing on, like I, I remember right. doing that when I worked in a warehouse. I think some of that stuff would, would have had to been ad-libbed just to see if they could get Dustin and Erica to break character laughing so hard. <laughs> right. And I think we both have a, a question about how deep this facility is because they are in mm-hmm. this elevator going up for a good minute and a half, maybe almost. And it's like flying. So that makes me think that they are like a thousand stories (laughs) below the surface or something ridiculous because there's just no way the elevator would take that long at the speed it was going. So I get that they needed to have a dramatic scene or not a dramatic scene. They need to have a a scene take place in the elevator, but it should have been going really slow then. Like, oh, why is it going so slow? Like, come on, we got to get out of here. They should have. They, they could have had fun with the elevator, like because it fell. If we recall, it basically fell at a at lightning speed when they went down. So maybe going back up takes a long time or something. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think about those TV shows and movies where you have a timer on screen or off screen, like you know, oh, you've got ten seconds, like a bomb's about to go off, and. You've done this probably. I did this as a kid and I still do it. Whenever there's a scene like that, if I see one minute, I'll mentally go 59 seconds, 58, 57. And then it'll cut back and it'll be like, I'll be on like 35 seconds and it'll say like 42. And I'm like, okay. So apparently cinematic time is not the same as like real time. So the only thing I could say is they weren't in real time. They were in cinematic time, in which case it took faster to get up there. But they still, the conversations they were all having still take time. Like they they couldn't have had all of the back and forth that they had in, say, 10 or 12 seconds, which is probably what it should have taken to shoot back up the elevator shaft in the same way that it did when it fell down. Anyway, we try to suspend our disbelief. We have difficulty with this particular aspect of this season, but we will, we'll just, we'll move along. They get out of the elevator (laughs) and they see more Russian guards outside in that loading dock area. And they quickly run back inside the mall, but they, they see, I think they're lucky that those doors were unlocked because it's nighttime. So, uh, just lucky that's suspend. (laughs) That's where I can suspend my disbelief. I'm like, Oh yeah, well it's a loading dock area. Okay. Maybe they leave those doors open or unlocked, but yeah. Anyway, they leave everything unlocked and unguarded in Hawkins, Indiana, apparently. (laughs) That's very true. Small town, America, small town, America. Yeah. Why leave anything unlocked or unguarded or without alarms? 
Well, just watch an episode of Stranger Things and you'll see why. So we're back at Hopper's cabin. Nancy and Jonathan are going to the shed to get weapons. How do they know they're there? I guess because Hopper. Um, I've just decided to just not question anything at this point when it comes to logic. Because why? Well, the only weapon that was in the shed was the shotgun, I noticed. Uh, Nancy finds a shotgun. Jonathan actually grabs like a wood axe from a tree stump outside. Okay. So okay. I, there might have been other weapons, but I didn't really notice anything else other than the shotgun and the, and the axe. And I have to say that just like the last two seasons, when they're preparing for a battle, I still question why the other characters aren't finding like a steak knife or something, like anything, like just grab something like you're standing there with nothing in your hands, a piece of wood, <laughs> anything, find something. But I guess they're all relying on L and yeah, Nancy with her shotgun. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Punch? Are you gonna punch this dude in the face? <laughs> like, what yeah. are you gonna do with this thing? It's a giant spider that's like bigger than the world, and you're gonna like say no, no, no. You're gonna like shoo it away. You can't do that, <laughs> right? Get the get the wrist rocket, Lucas. Do something. <laughs> or even a piece of wood. You can do like the Rancor scene in Return of the Jedi, like stick it in its mouth <laughs> if it tries to chomp on you. Exactly. I don't know. Just like yeah. <laughs> like your fight or flight instinct should tell you to like grab something to help you fight. And they don't yeah. all do that for some weird reason. Anyway, <laughs> I do find it interesting that in all three seasons, there is a scene like this where you have them sort of trapped yeah. in a room of some kind uh, or a house. And they're all sort of like surrounding one another in sort of like army fashion, getting ready to take on this beast. Right. It doesn't get old. I think the fact that we have this evolution of these things um the demodogs being the first thing or not the first one but back in season two i don't remember specifically i think it was a demogorgon in season one i don't recall yeah in season one they're in jonathan and will's house and the demogorgon attacks them it kind of comes through the wall remember and they're waiting right. for it to appear that's right. yeah that's right okay yeah so the lights flicker will says it's close and then they're shaking and then there's silence and then jump scare with the tentacles love how everyone gets involved nancy got the shotgun jonathan lucas take on the thing with the axe at different points i want to point out that this creature is very strategic i mean it's coming in from multiple locations it obviously can because it's got arms or tentacles or appendages of some kind but it's it's attacking like it's definitely deliberate in how it's attacking going through a window and trying to grab Nancy, I think at one point. So kudos to it. It's very smart. It doesn't feel like a dumb beast. It's like, I'm just trying to go after anything I can. Like it really does seem like it's seeing openings, chinks in the armor, and just going after as many of these folks as possible. Yeah, no, clearly it, because one thing we didn't mention is they kind of barricade up all the doors and windows as best as they can in the time they have to try to shore up their cabin as much as possible. But it finds holes, finds places to come through. And yeah, it's not just some mindless monster. Clearly, there's a higher intelligence in there or guiding it somehow. And it wants L, as we learned. It's clearly targeting L and, and going after her, which is why it's at the cabin to begin with. Yeah, she's sort of like a beacon of something, tragedy or yeah. <laughs> violence or whatever yeah, we're going to call right. it. Poor girl. Yeah, and the, and the special effects are really great in this scene, too, because we see her rip the tentacles 
left and right, like she's ripping arms off this thing. And then once she gets picked up by this thing, then I think it's Lucas who attacks with the with the axe, Nancy, big Nancy with the shotgun like she always is. And then once Elle gets free, she essentially rips the thing's mouth in half or whatever it's called. Right. I almost felt that kind of pain. Like as if somebody was like taking my yeah. cheeks and just ripping them in half really, really just kind of visceral visual at this point. And it left me going, ooh. I mean, this was a really great suspenseful action sequence. And it really shows that Elle hasn't had to face anything of this magnitude yet. Like she's clearly not prepared for a battle of this magnitude. So that ups the ante of suspense and and the fact that she does get injured after this encounter that her leg appears to be bitten or scratched, but yet they, the episode's called The Bite, so it's clearly intended to be some kind of bite from this monster, which uh, is not the best looking. <laughs> yeah. It's a little infected, just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's never going to heal if you don't yeah. stop picking. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's yeah, a little scabby. <laughs> If I didn't know that this was where the title came from, I would have probably guessed it came from the next scene in the mall where (laughs) Dustin makes a decision that the best way to hide all four of these folks is to go see Back to the Future. Something inconspicuous! You know, that's all I was thinking about. And Steve grabbing that popcorn. I'm like, Steve's going to take a bite out of popcorn from the trash. That was hilarious. Again, I think I'd like to believe that was completely ad-libbed for him to just grab popcorn from the trash can <laughs> because he'd alluded to the fact that he was hungry and he wanted to get some yes. snacks. Cause you know, when you're high as a kite, he's got the munchies, have the munchies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, this is fantastic that they bring back to the future back into, we, we mentioned it earlier in the season that we saw a poster of it and we confirmed that it did indeed open on July 3rd, 1985. So here we are July 4th opening weekend so of course you have a packed movie theater except for the front row where no one wants to sit because the seats are you know oh man i love that part i love the meta-ness <laughs> of that there there are a couple of moments of like yeah. pop culture meta that was hilarious yeah. and that was one of them like nobody wants to sit in the front row including robin robin made a great comment that that's the most terrible spot to sit in <laughs> yeah i i think it's really great too that they make you feel, I mean, this show is all about nostalgia, but as someone who absolutely loves this film, and I never got to see the first one in a theater. I saw part two and three in the theater, but I only saw the first film at home with my family on VHS. So I kind of felt like I got to see it the way an audience would have seen it on a big screen in 1985, not knowing anything about the movie, not having any preconceived notions of what this film was going to be or how important it was going to become for cinematic history that here it is with a you know a first time audience just sitting there waiting to be amazed by what this film is yeah when i watch how steve reacts he doesn't know what's going on and it's interesting because if you step into this movie even this is like pretty early on i would not know what's going on either i see this like 1985 delorean this crazy haired wild-eyed scientist talking to this kid in a, <laughs> right. in, a, in a life preserver or whatever it's called. And I wouldn't know what's going on either. Meanwhile, you've got Dustin, who has a couple of great moments in this. He's talking to he's talking to Steve. He says, Sorry, whatever you do, don't go anywhere. Fine. 
<laughs> just it's completely yeah. snarky. And yeah. then he talks to Erica because they go to the other side of the theater. They sit down in those terrible front row seats. I love the irony of them laying low, quote, like Oswald <laughs> that he compares them to. And right. Erica's like, Oswald was found in the theater and shot to death. A week later. Point is, his plan didn't work. Only because it was a setup. What? He was just a patsy. Tell me you're joking. Shh. And it's just so yeah. fantastic. But again, why would how would Erica know that? <laughs> what nine, ten year old girl knows about anyway, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. She's just not acting her age as as always. <laughs> yeah. So Dustin goes for help and then we're in Hopper's excuse me, Todd Father's car. Yeah, I guess Hopper is officially sort of taken taken ownership of it without actually like paying for He's it. He's co- commandeered it. <laughs> He's commandeered it, yeah. He's commandeered it. Murray's translating what the plan should be, and to summarize, it's two keys and Planck's constant that are required to turn off the machine. So this is, again, a little callback for me to war games where you have the two keys that have to be inserted at the same time. Code has to be put in before the nuclear missiles get launched. And Planck's constant, Murray says, is a very famous number. (laughs) That's all he tells us. I looked that up. It's not a number. It's It's like a big, long equation and i'm like how do you punch that in i don't know <laughs> maybe we'll see in the next episode we definitely don't see it in this episode but no. uh that to me seems like a little mcguffin because that's a, <laughs> i'm looking at it and i'm like i don't understand this number at all like it's not like the quadratic equation like there are little there are other symbols right. and how do you type in symbols like the division sign <laughs> if that's if that's for sure part of it so when joyce hears this she's like easy peasy we can do this and Hopper's like, no. So they start bickering, and it's hysterical. It's absolutely hysterical, typical for them. Joyce, did you hear the part where he said the place was like an impenetrable fortress? Yeah, but there has to be a way in. Yeah, there is. Our military. Who are coming. Well, we don't know that anymore because you yelled at them like it was a parent-teacher conference, and then you hung up on them. So we don't know what the hell's going on because now we're... Wait, wait, what are we doing? Oh, wait, that's right. We're on our way to rescue our children from the big, bad Fourth of July celebration. You know what? If you can't handle this then just turn around and drop me up first. What are you going to do? You're going to walk back to August? I will do anything if it gets me away from you. And they're just going back and forth, man. This is a moment where Murray Murray shines for me. He's metaphorically putting them on the therapy couch and basically tells them what most of us have already been thinking. Just get together already. Just get together. Yeah. You know? Make <laughs> yeah. whoopee, whatever. Hold hands. Do something. But just acknowledge the fact that you actually are attracted to each other. It's so great. He basically does what, what we loved from season two with Jonathan and Nancy with Joyce and Hopper. He says, Joyce is afraid to get involved with the brute because of a past relationship. And Hopper's a big man baby. That's a great term for <laughs> Hopper. What did you say? Slovenly earlier in the season? I think man baby <laughs> is a great kind of upgrade for, for Hopper yes. in this. And you know what? I'm in full agreement, Murray. I think accurate description, get paid for your psychological help there and let them do their thing and just get together. Yeah. And their reaction is like, Whoa, you are way off base, buddy. You know? (laughs) And they're like, again, it's the old, you know, they protest too much. They are completely on the defensive, which proves even further that they clearly like each other. And as we know, as viewers, they have a history of some kind that has never been fully explained, but yes, they need to, uh, to just, 
figure out what's going on between them. And hopefully if they survive this current ordeal, they will. <laughs> Meanwhile, Alexi and, and Murray are just having fun in the back because Murray just explained to him what all that was about. <laughs> what was that? I told them they should have sex. They haven't had sex. And then they both laugh. And it's this great little moment yeah. where I feel like Murray looks at Alexi like, hey, we're, we're kind of the same person here. We're both eccentric. We both speak Russian. And there's a little buddy relationship going on here. Maybe not to the extreme of Steve and Dustin, but the beginnings of something here. And and I like oh, it. Oh, yeah. Like the it. little little male bonding moment. And yeah, it's uh, and just as they laugh you know, the car enters Indiana and they still have a long way to go, but they, uh, yeah, they're going, they're heading to, they got to find the kids. <laughs> got to be something about your kids, yeah. Marty. <laughs> yeah. That's what, that's what I thought of. If you didn't think we were going to quote some back to the future in this episode, you were wrong. We have to. <laughs> and if those listening haven't, they can go listen to our feel and film trilogy of episodes where we do the deep dive on each and every film and why we love each yeah. of them. In yeah. their own way. It's good conversation. And partly yeah, what sparked a lot of this podcast, in a way, yeah. <laughs> yeah in a stuff. way, yeah. Well, the kids are at Bradley's Big Buy, a local grocery store. And we know that because Nancy does a big old hockey slide with the station wagon right into the parking lot <laughs> before they do a little breaking yeah. and entering. Again, no alarms. Why would there be alarms in Hawkins? You can well, just break right in. Maybe just to be... To defend them, it could be a silent alarm that notifies the police. <laughs> but yet, no police ever show up. They, so they're like forty-five yeah. minutes in there, dude. They're like, I know. Like, they, they basically <laughs> spend the night in there with with all the stuff they do. Like the police are. I mean, Hopper's not. not anything. Hopper's <laughs> off duty apparently. Uh, we don't know what yeah. those two doofuses are doing. Maybe they're at the fun fair. <laughs> You know, so it's a small town. They're riding the Gravitron. <laughs> That's my... Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> no one ever breaks into the supermarket. <laughs> Especially called Bradley's Big Buy. <laughs> right. They go in there because they're, they're looking for stuff to clean up Elle's wound. More right. great product placement here. Max knows what she's doing. She basically says, this is the order in which you should be doing it. I know because, you know, skateboarding, hello. <laughs> There's right. great, uh, I think you, you saw this, the Gremlins advertisement on the Ziploc bags. I thought that was pretty fantastic because Gremlins had released that year, year before. And so definitely going to take advantage of a, of a popular Spielberg movie by putting it on a Ziploc yeah. bag box. You know, I looked it up and, you know, cause you can find, you know, vintage packaging online on eBay, whatever. And this was a real... Ziploc promotion where you could get a free Gremlins movie sticker featuring Gizmo in each box of Ziploc sandwich bags in the summer of 1985. So the fact that they just, oh, wow. you know, that they did this, first of all, that's cool. I would have bought some Ziploc bags to get a free Gremlins Me too. sticker in 1985. But I just love that either they found some original boxes or maybe they worked with Ziploc to recreate them to make them look authentic. I, I mean, this is where the production design just knocks it out of the park for this this whole set. I mean, they really have to pay attention to detail, especially when you're watching a show in 4K resolution on Netflix where you can really see what's in the background. If things don't look just right, someone is going to be nitpicking <laughs> and doing what yeah. I just did. I looked up the Ziploc promotion to see if that was a real thing, and it was. So I give kudos to the team responsible for for all of this including the serial 
aisle, which we'll get into momentarily. <laughs> Before we go there, Jonathan and Nancy, they're speculating about the monster. This is where that they sort of realize what we're realizing, that all the flayed must be inside it, including Mrs. Driscoll, unfortunately. Lucas yeah. and Will are looking for a bowl. Max says, go look for a bowl. We need a bowl to put stuff in to disinfect. I think it's hilarious that they don't know anything about where stuff is in a supermarket. They assume that a bowl is in the cereal aisle because why? You use a bowl to eat your cereal. So why right, wouldn't it right. be in the cereal aisle? I think this is really a gag to show off like how good the product placement is and how good the production design is. And that's fine. I'm, yeah. I'm all for that. I think you should throw a little bit of love at the production team because I saw... Among the Cereal, Mr. T, Ghostbusters, G.I. Joe, Pac-Man, Rainbow Bright, Smurfberry Crunch, Cracker Jack Cereal, didn't know that existed, Donkey Kong, <laughs> and they're all in the same section, which tells me one of two things. Either you're there for literal eye candy, <laughs> in this case eye cereal, to show off all the great cereal that existed back in the 80s, or based off of where it was in proximity to the healthier cereal, that's kind of how things were in grocery stores. My recollection is that the sugary cereal was on the bottom because that's where the little kids would see it and the healthier stuff was on top. But I could easily believe right. that they sectioned it off where the first half of the aisle was healthy and the second half was like sugary terrible. So either one yeah. would have been, <laughs> I think, believable. I agree. And I think you're right because most of these cereals have no health value whatsoever. <laughs> it's just sugar and carbs and that's it so it's always a part of a healthy breakfast they would say on the commercials so you really yeah oh, you can yeah. eat this but then you have to eat a whole bunch of other things to actually have the healthy part of the breakfast i just have to say that looking at all these cereal boxes this was kind of the golden age of kids breakfast cereals in the sense yeah. that like every single one of them was based or tied into a movie or a TV series or a cartoon. Like it was like, what a great time to be a kid buying cereal because everything looked amazing. I mean, as someone who, this is something you don't know about me, but I like to take pictures. I'm an amateur photographer in that I just take pictures deliberately that are not just with my phone. And mm. before we had Carson, my son, I would go out on weekends because my wife worked on Saturday mornings and I would actually just go shoot different things and like architecture and I would call it non-organic stuff. So bridges and things like that. And I would try to get it at kind of weird angles. I would find myself wanting to go to places like Kroger or Walmart or grocery stores that had these bright colors and the placement of the food, because psychologically there's a reason why things are placed where they are, how the colors are coordinated and this particular aisle in this scene made me want to, it kind of reminded me of why I love doing that because I want to take pictures of all of that cereal put together because it's beautifully placed. I mean, again, the right. design of it is intentional, not only for the scene itself to kind of build out the scene or to fill up the scene, but it makes for a really amazing just canvas to look at. Because it's like, where's Waldo for the nostalgic people in us? But it's also, right. in terms of completing the scene, you want to have a full aisle of cereal. You don't want to have like an empty one. Because those things articulate something different. If you had an empty aisle with like two or three boxes of cereal, what would you think of? Oh, it's Apocalypse. Oh, it's like The Walking Dead or something like that where we're in a post-apocalyptic world or everything's gone. 
this has this right. psychological sense of like, yes, there's enough. There's never any doubt that we're going to be able to get our cereal. And it's just really cool to look at. So yeah, I, I really liked this particular part of the set, as I know you did. Yeah, they did a great job. And then it's fun because uh, they find fireworks in the grocery store, which didn't exist in my grocery stores growing up. <laughs> <What>? But <laughs> hey, it's Indiana. I don't know. Every state has different laws regarding fireworks, right? So I no I, alarms, I, fire I, or otherwise. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, there's no alarm. No, why need those? But it gets Lucas excited because uh, he thinks that you know these fireworks could be helpful in their in the battle to come against this creature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He says, rightly so, El's going to need some backup, and apparently Satan's baby, which is the name of that firework that he (laughs) saw, or several of Satan's babies, will take down this monster, at least try to. (laughs) And he knows a lot about them, too. Like, he's very well- He does. He's got some knowledge. uh, Educated on his fireworks. (laughs) I think it's from the military background that his dad has. I mean, he's probably got a little bit Uh, of that from from him. Meanwhile, Mike and El are dialoguing as uh, boyfriend and girlfriend do. Mike realizes that his keeping her from expanding her world was wrong. I thought this was kind of cool where he's basically going beyond just saying, I'm sorry, and giving her an I'm sorry present, but really saying, you know what? I realize what the audience watching this show already realized, which is you need to be more than just a tonsil hockey girl. You need to have friends. You need to be your own person, essentially. And what I think is it's great because just like any good episode of television or movie what makes a good bit of dramatic writing work so well for me are these moments of levity. So you see him trying to explain that he loves her and he's saying things like, yeah, they do say it makes you crazy. What makes you crazy? You never, you ever heard that term, you know, like the phrase like blank makes you crazy. Like the word. Girlfriends? No, 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 not not girlfriends. Boyfriends. No, 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 not boyfriends either. It's like it's like a feeling, or yeah, like something, like like an, old people say to each other sometimes. Old it's, people? Yeah. What I want to say is that I just I know that I. And she's confused, and <laughs> they never get to that point because they're interrupted right. by Dustin on the walkie with a code red. And the Back to the Future music in the background. <laughs> oh my gosh, this was so amazing. Dustin? Mike? Dustin! Mike! Oh my god, you have to listen. I stood up for a second and I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me that they would incorporate not just a movie for nostalgic reasons, but they would actually incorporate the soundtrack? And I still can't quite put my finger on it. But I'm assuming that we are hearing, because he's talking through the walkie inside the film room where the movie is projecting, right. we're hearing the soundtrack right. in the background from the movie. Is that is that a correct assumption? Yeah, that, I mean, that's the implication is that because he's radioing from the projection booth that we're hearing the music from the movie in the background. And it just happens to be like the perfect score to the events unfolding for the characters on screen (laughs) as well (laughs) it kind of elevates the quality of this scene to a whole nother level because all of a sudden we have the iconic score by alan silvestri which i have to say i think it's up there with star wars indiana jones it's one of the most recognizable theme tracks to any movie ever released i mean i i would argue that if you played that track 
for most people, they would know what movie it goes to. And I love it. I, I've listened to those scores so many times in the background while working. It's just, they're, they're amazing. It's really good. And it works just absolutely perfectly in this scene. They, of course, can't understand what he's saying because the battery's going out and he's yelling, the Russians have infiltrated Hawkins. And he's just freaked out. So he needs batteries. He says he always carries them, but doesn't have enough. I started thinking, if you've got batteries, I think he has his backpack. Wouldn't you take as many as you could and replace? Because at least having half, three, maybe, it would give you some juice. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't thinking that way. Or maybe it's a special kind of walkie that needs fresh batteries in order to work completely or it doesn't work at all. But I don't think that's the case. No, I think he said he needed eight batteries and he didn't have enough. But I agree with you that I've done this trick. If you take out two of the bad ones, put two fresh ones in, usually that'll buy you a little time until you can get some more. (laughs) So at the theater, he needs batteries, but he also needs Robin and Steve because they're not there anymore. They've left the theater. We find them outside in the lobby. Steve's drinking a lot of water from the water fountain. Robin's trying to understand Back to the Future. So, like, I wasn't totally focused in there or anything, but I'm pretty sure that mom was trying to bang her son. Wait, wait, the hot chick was Alex B. Keaton's mom? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But they're the same age. No, but he went back in time. (laughs) Then why is it called Back to the Future? He has to go back to the future because he's in the past. So the future is actually the present, which is his time. Two things here. One, you didn't stare for the whole movie, so that's why you don't understand it. But also, I've had these conversations. So again, another meta moment of like, these are things that you yeah. would talk about after watching this movie. I don't, I don't understand. And it makes for a great conversation then. It makes for a good conversation now. Still relevant for anybody that's watching this and asking like time travel questions. So even if you're high, completely logical to have these kind of conversations. Totally. And I, I loved Steve's line where he, when he says, wait, the hot chick was Alex P. Keaton's mom. <laughs> Alex P. Keaton, of course, was Michael yes. J. Fox's character from Family Ties, which he was, <laughs> yes. as, if people don't know, he was filming at the same time he had to actually film family ties during the day and shoot back to the future at night. He was only getting like two hours of sleep every day for like a month. That was the only way the producers of family ties would let him out of his contract to do back to the Future is if he could do it overnight. So almost the entirety of back to the future was filmed at nighttime, except for a few outdoor scenes that had to be shot outside during daylight hours. It's insane. I don't know how he did it. Yeah, I don't either. As I think about the scenes that were iconic they're all at night so yeah totally makes sense that or indoors you know in a in a sound stage or yeah where it's controlled well what else is playing at that theater adam (laughs) uh we see that fletch cocoon return to oz daryl which i never saw and the stuff which i did see and actually gave me nightmares when i first saw it for some reason and it's so stupid now because it's like the blob, only like a B version of that. And I'm like, I didn't eat yogurt for a long time because I thought something crazy would happen in my body after I ate ate yogurt that tasted really good. So the stuff was stuff of legend in my childhood trauma. So, And it's funny, 
I never even heard of the stuff. I mean, here's 80s, like, obsessed Adam, and I haven't heard of or seen that film. I've seen every other film that was playing, including Daryl, which, by the way, starred Barrett Oliver, who played Bastion in The NeverEnding Story. And he was also in oh. Cocoon, which was playing as well. So Barrett Ob- <laughs> Oliver was, you know, it was like, he was hot stuff back in 1984, 85. And that was about it. So... <laughs> After that, I don't know what he did. Not much, apparently, because we don't no. remember. <laughs> Steve, after he drinks his water, Robin takes over the water fountain. He starts seeing the crazy lights from above, and Robin does, and then this is where they throw up and go to the bathroom right. and you know chuck all of their highness in there and apparently start sobering <laughs> right. up at that point. Yeah, got to get it out of your system. You do. You got to flush it out, literally, in the toilet. <laughs> so Hopper and Joyce are at the fair... They roll in. Hopper tells Murray, stay put, Freud. <laughs> right. Freud and Smirnoff. Freud and Smirnoff. That's a great buddy comedy, I think, in the making. <laughs> <laughs> the Adventures yeah. of Freud and Smirnoff. <laughs> Maybe we'll see like a comic series one day. Maybe so. Maybe so. I think Hopper's probably, if he's got any redeeming quality that we haven't pointed out already, it's giving great nicknames to people. So I think Freud and... Yes. And Smirnoff are, are good. <laughs> they take off, and I think they're looking for the kids at the fair. Right. Because they know that that's where you know everything is. Klein spots them, and then he calls the Russians on Zach Morris's phone. So, listeners, <laughs> you know me. I'm a big Saved by the Bell fan, and I was really happy to see Zach Morris's phone uh, with a cord, because it's a car phone, <laughs> making yeah. its appearance here where he's calling the calling the Russians. Yeah, and this is where we clearly and now we if we didn't know, he's clearly owned by the Russians or in cahoots with the Russians. I mean, we knew he was, but he's making the call. He's actually he's kind of playing both sides, but he honest he's clearly doesn't care what happens to Hopper or Joyce. He's just, you know, he's watching out for his own neck basically. And I did yeah. notice something interesting here because I was curious in the opening scene when we see Klein his bruises are all gone. He looks like he's all healed from his uh, previous, from his raccoon eyes. But then I noticed when he was getting his picture taken in this scene and a flash went off that he had what looked like skin tone makeup, like caked around his eyes oh, to kind of yeah. cover up the bruising that he had all around his eyes. So, hey, they, yeah. they didn't miss it. I was worried they missed that one that like, oh, yeah, he's all better now 24 hours later. <laughs> but... <laughs> They just, you know, it's a very subtle detail. He knows how to cover up. Got to get that politician face going on because he can't wear glasses in the uh, sunglasses at night. He's not Corey Hart. So anyway, (laughs) (laughs) the kids are not at the fair. They're at uh, Bradley's Big Buy. And um, Elle needs it cold to concentrate with her Merc bandana on. And of course, she's in front of Egos. One more meta moment here. The dialogue about New Coke. Oh my gosh, this is fantastic. How do you even drink that? Because it's delicious. What? It's like Carpenter's The Thing. The original is the classic. No question about it. But the remake? (sighs) Sweeter. Bolder. Better. You're insane. So, you prefer the original thing? 
What? No, I'm not talking about the thing. I'm talking about New Coke. It's the same concept, dude. Uh, actually, it's not the same concept. It is the same concept. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Hey! I didn't expect it to go on as long as it did. Because it really, in all honesty, it, it only added humor to the scene. It wasn't like she had already found whoever it was she was looking for. But the whole thing about Lucas defending New Coke, it was like these are the conversations that I remember having on the receiving end of that. I was obviously in the camp of Mike and, and Max. And the facial expression these kids are making, they're like, really? You cannot be kidding. No, New Coke's awful. It's like, it's different, fresher. Better or whatever. I think it was like the the slogan or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But clearly the Duffers are acknowledging that. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, it's very meta in that this is these are some of the conversations that people were having or critics were having about this series as a whole. That it feels like it's copying the shows and movies of the '80s with kids, but it's fresher and newer and better. You know, that's it was a nice little way to to work that conversation especially the whole analogy of the thing the original thing versus john carpenter's remake of the thing and how they're both yeah great in their own ways they you know yeah it's it was a fun really fun scene and i just have to say that i don't think i've ever knowingly had new coke as a kid i don't know if i have so i don't remember the difference i of course love coca-cola classic if you, <laughs> but i don't have any recollection of having it i may have had it not knowing what it was just you know at a party or something, just a birthday party, having some Coke and didn't notice the difference. But uh, and what about you? Did you, did you have it at all? I remember drinking it. And I think, I think I am creating memories of me not liking it. I do remember it being different mm. than Coca-Cola classic, but I don't remember there being such a like divisiveness to it until later. And I think I would yeah. jump on board with the classic because that's what stayed. I mean, again, the narrative you're going to make in anything is like history writes itself in terms of like, well, what survived? Well, that survived. So right. then we're going to be on the quote right side of history. Maybe New Coke right. was actually really good. Honestly, if I remember anything about the Cola Wars, I remember when Clear Pepsi came out and I actually enjoyed it for a oh, while, yeah. but then I realized it was not, not cool to like Clear Pepsi, even though apparently <laughs> right. it was not cool to like Pepsi in comparison to Coke. So I was kind of a loser on like another end of the spectrum when it came to like what you were supposed <laughs> to drink. So what did I do? Well, I just switched to Dr. Pepper because that was a neutral drink that everybody enjoyed for the most part until Mr. Pibb came along and then you screwed me over again. So I really never had it good in terms of like being my own drink person. So yeah, I sort of remember, I remember New Coke enough to know that it was something of a controversy and I remember drinking it and it being sweeter than Coca-Cola Classic, but I I don't think I ever latched on to, you got to hate New Coke because it's awful and the classic's better. That's why it's stuck around. So I I never was one of those guys, I don't think. I think that what their mistake was is they should have kept Coke and they should have made just a new beverage product called something else. You know, it didn't need to be, it didn't need to replace the original. I think that was the sort of marketing mistake is they thought that they were going to improve upon something that wasn't broken. If people were complaining that Coke didn't taste good, then okay, maybe that's worth trying to find a, a solution to, but it, it wasn't a problem. But it was, as yeah. you said, a very competitive time, the soft drink wars of the 80s between Pepsi. I remember when Pepsi partnered with Michael Jackson and it was like the biggest thing ever that they had such a huge star, huge celebrity promoting that brand. And then, yeah, like the the crystal clear product when that came out, 
for some reason, the only thing that sticks with me, though, I don't know if you ever saw this on, on Saturday Night Live when they made a spoof of the Crystal Clear Pepsi, but it was Crystal Clear Gravy, and people were, like, splashing it on their face. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Phil Hartman was I drink, didn't see like, drinking it, and it's, like, just oozing out of a <laughs> glass, and it's disgusting. <laughs> so gross. I love the campaign for Clear Pepsi because it was Sammy Hagar's part of Van Halen, the Right Now Right song. now. Yeah, and that's what they yeah. use in it's the SNL. Tomorrow. So if you yeah, Google it. Google SNL Crystal Clear Gravy, and they use that song. So it feels like a real commercial for Crystal Clear Pepsi, but it was for this disgusting, thick, viscous gravy that was clear. <laughs> very, okay. very humorous. I've got it pulled up to watch after the episode. So yeah. it's over here on the left side of my screen going, okay. watch me soon, and I will. Yeah. It's like 30 seconds, so <laughs> You'll be... Yeah. So that scene ends with them leaving with tons of fireworks. Elle has blood from her wound. It starts dripping or moving or something. And we're like, okay, well, that bite clearly left something behind. And it was even this is one of... screeching. Did you hear that? I had my headphones on. It was like making I a didn't very faint no. like screeching sound. So it almost feels like what her blood was alive or part mm. of the mind flayer, perhaps. I don't know. There was okay. an, an intention there to that sound, additional sound effect, though. Yeah, I didn't I didn't hear that. I had it on subtitles, which is unfortunate. I'm going to try to watch the season finale yeah. with headphones to really get into, into it. Yeah. No distractions. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the camera transition from this scene to the next one is really great. There's a great zoom into the blood and then like a zoom out to the barf that's in like the bathroom. Yeah, like overhead toilet. of just, the toilet bowl. Yeah. <laughs> It's so gross. <laughs> and this is where Robin and Steve are sobering up by throwing up and they start yeah. opening up to each other. This is one of those, I, I would call it maybe a, maybe a levy moment, even though he didn't direct this, but um, Steve is admitting that he's been in love with Nancy Wheeler when asked by Robin, but that he could love again with Robin, <laughs> except that Robin likes someone else. And this is where we get a little bit more of an unpacking of who Robin is, that mm -hmm. um, when he confesses how he feels about her, I love her reaction because it's like uncomfortable and distant. Uh, she doesn't really want to tell him the truth. And she says, I'm not like your other friends and I'm not like Nancy Wheeler. And the way she says it feels so just like discontent. Like, I don't want to be like her. After we hear the conversation, I don't think it's her saying she hates Nancy Wheeler. I think it's her saying that as much as she would want to be with Steve, she knows that who she is is not someone that could be with him. And I think there's a little bit of a, a pain in there because of how she's grown to feel about Steve over these last few days inside the Russian bunker and working with him, figuring out this code at Scoops Ahoy. Right. I just want to add, there's a really great camera angle where, again, it's like directly overhead. And this is clearly a set, you know, where they there's no ceiling mm -hmm. or anything. So they have the camera and the way Steve kind of pulls himself under the wall between of the stalls so that he can join yeah. Robin on her side and her in her stall was a really great little camera move and, and angle that they chose. Mm -hmm. they, I like that. I like when they do sort of creative choices like that to kind of to further the story there's a little bit of symmetry there at the beginning and yeah. i think that the asymmetry of him coming over we obviously see a little bit of like physical intimacy with them being closer together but it becomes 
sort of synonymous with the conversation that they're having. Like the conversation has gone from being like casual or distant to now, okay, we're talking about more than just slinging ice cream and crazy Russians that are asking us who we work for. We're now talking about who we are and what we want. And it's here that we find out that it wasn't Steve that she was attracted to. It's this girl, Tammy Thompson. She says, I wanted her to look at me but she couldn't pull her eyes away from you. And she jokes about, and your crazy hair. (laughs) And it's, (laughs) it's sweet. It's very, it's honest. And I think Steve's reaction was just as good. He's kind of disappointed. He's like, ah, you know, I had this inkling of like, wow, we could be something. And I've sort of fallen in love with you and everything that you've become to me. But he's sort of eventually accepting of, the situation and he's kind of sarcastically says tammy thompson's a dud and we leave that conversation with them laughing about how she can't sing she has dreams she can't even hold a tune i'm just practically tone deaf have you heard her all the time She does not sound like that. Sounds exactly. That's no, a she great does not impersonation sound like that. of her. You sound like a Muppet. She sounds like a Muppet. She sounds like a Muppet giving birth. <laughs> and if you can hold me tight, I'll be holding on forever. Exactly. <laughs> and as they're laughing, yeah. Dustin and Erica bust in. They're like, really? And I, I think it's fantastic because from our perspective, they've sobered up and they've sort of realigned their brains and are laughing about something completely different. Meanwhile, Dustin and Erica are coming in and they think they're probably just still high as all get out because they're still laughing hysterically at what seems like nothing. And I love how that scene ends. Yeah, it's a really great scene. And I love when they mention her singing like a Muppet. Steve actually does like an impression of Kermit the Frog singing. So it's like these little details I think are great. And they're just, you know, they're making each other laugh. And they clearly, I think, have finally connected on a deeper level and they understand each other. They they have a much stronger friendship now than I think they've ever had before. And and it's uh yeah. It's all due to the to the Russian bunker. <laughs> if one good thing came out of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Back at Bradley's Big Buy, the kids are not there, but Billy is. He busts in. And I think it's funny that he busts in, he breaks glass. And I'm like, dude, just walk in. The glass is broken. Stop trying to be all swole. We know you got muscles. You're awesome. You got a great mullet, okay? (laughs) Just walk in. And he finds the blood. And it's kind of like a homing device, I guess. That's kind of what I gleaned from this is that, okay, the bite is from someone, this alive creature. And based on what we see later, there's some, as you mentioned, there's some little screaming. So, yes, apparently Billy has connected to this. And I'm asking the question, like, does he know where they are at this point? We don't really get that clue of can he see that they have now gone back to the mall? Does he see L specifically? So that was a question that I had leaving the episode was like, are they obviously they're not saying, yeah, but yeah. does he know specifically I mean, I th- where they are? I think there's implication that somehow the Mind Flayer sort of infected Elle, and so therefore her blood, that a trace of the Mind Flayer now kind of lives in Elle's blood. So so he was drawn to the blood that was on the floor, perhaps, but he should also be drawn to wherever she may be. So maybe it's not instantaneous, but he can kind of, like an animal finding a scent, he can probably search for Elle wherever Elle eventually winds up going to. It's interesting. This is really the only 
short little scene with Billy in this whole episode. He just kind of walks through the door, mm-hmm. looks at the blood, and that's it. No more Billy in this episode. Deuces. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Give me yeah. my paycheck, Duffers. No lines. Yeah. No. No. No dialogue. <laughs> we need you to look brooding and break some glass when you come in, Billy. Can right. you do that? Yep. Got it. <laughs> so- you mentioned the top-down shot in the bathroom. This is yep. replicated a little bit in the next scene at the fair with the scrambler. I thought that was kind of cool. Yes. Alexi is talking to Murray. And I think they're in the car. What we see is that he's sort of giving him more insight into this machine. He says, look, do you want to turn it off or do you want to destroy it? And Murray's like, i got to destroy it. So he's sort of giving him instructions on how to do that. It seems as though he's telling him this because Murray has sort of offered him American citizenship. He's like, I kind of want to ditch this Russian life and enjoy my Slurpees (laughs) and my Whoppers and all this stuff as a pure American. And this leads to kind of a a fun moment with them where Murray says, hey, you want to be American? Let's go to the fair. And he says, fatty foods, ugly decadence, rigged games. It doesn't get any more American than this. And on the 4th of July, like, you literally can't get more yes. patriotic, more American than on on the 4th of July. I mean, those should be like, okay, you've ticked the boxes for being American right there. Exactly. One thing to add is Alexi does inform Murray, which I think is important, that you don't want to be anywhere near the key when you destroy it because it turns people to dust. And we saw that in the opening of the very Mm -hmm. first episode in Russia, when it was really in Russia, that when that key malfunctioned, that it just like vaporized (laughs) the scientists standing around it. So clearly that's something that we uh, want our our heroes to be aware of so they don't hurt themselves. (laughs) I hope I get my Raiders of the Lost Ark moment with somebody going, it's beautiful, right before it turns into (laughs) dust, I think. That would just make me happy. Yes. Meanwhile, Hopper and Joyce, yeah, they notice that Karen and her husband, they're getting on the Gravitron with their little girl. Really? Come on. This girl is like five. I don't think that's appropriate at all. But Don't you you have to be this high to go on this ride? Clearly not in Hawkins. (laughs) Standards have been thrown out the window when it comes to like Hawkins, like protection and safety of people. (laughs) Mr. Wheeler's not having a good time. This is where when the Gravitron starts going at full speed, Hopper and Joyce take the opportunity to hold hands with gravity and centrifugal force, pulling them together emotionally and physically. So it's kind of a little (laughs) metaphor for their love for each other. (laughs) They're being pressed together (laughs) against their will. (laughs) Because obviously they go in there to ask where their kids are, right? I love Mrs. Wheeler. Oh my gosh, I can hardly keep track these days. Uh, they were at uh, Dustin's, then Lucas's, then Max's. Max. Do you know how it is? Summer! Yeah, probably getting into some kind of trouble. <laughs> like, that's, everything that comes out of his mouth is basically worthless. <laughs> it really is. I haven't it's heard him just, say a I, single thing of value in this whole series. He needs his own like spinoff. <laughs> or he's the hero. I don't know what kind of show that would be. Yeah. He's, he's not a bad guy. He's just kind of lame. He just doesn't have yeah. much personality or or anything to him. He's got a good mm-hmm. job. I guess that's his redeeming quality. 
I suppose, but I never see him at his job. Yeah. I see him mowing the yard in the rain and <laughs> sleeping in his chair. <laughs> if that was him. We still don't know for sure who that was. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. I need it's, to give him some redemptive assume, quality, yeah. but I don't think that's redeeming. Okay, yeah. so we're back at the movie theater. Uh, back to the yes. Future is ending. We see it from the screen's point of view. Where we're going, we don't need roads. And the DeLorean takes so off. Everybody's clapping. Totally justified. Dustin and company uh, attempt to leave with the crowd. Did I hear this right? There's a bus to take the people home? Because Dustin mentioned yeah, the bus. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming it's the same bus that Max and L take when they go to the mall. And they Remember, they get off the bus. So Got maybe it. Okay. it like, picks you up on Main Street or something and takes people, I guess because they assume that most of the people in the town are young and don't have cars, so they need transportation to this more remote obviously they had to build this someplace where there was a lot of room <laughs> you know yeah anyway yeah it's not everyone has a skateboard like marty mcfly where they can skateboard to the mall <laughs> at one in the morning <laughs> sure yeah i guess i just don't think about it when i go to the mall to have a bus but yeah it's like a city bus like where you'd have it's yeah, running I, a different and it might have been something back then when the mall was new, so they needed to make sure that people who didn't have cars or young, like I said, people who didn't have driver's licenses could also enjoy all that the mall had to offer. So you walk into town, you hop on the bus, and you take you over. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess that's what happens, yeah. Dustin's attempt to be inconspicuous fails. The Russians spot them, so they take off. And then the best part of this scene is when Robin slides down the middle of the escalator. I never <laughs> in my life thought to do this, but now I have to go to our local mall and see if there's actually a space where you could physically do that. Not that I will as a 44 year old man. <laughs> I'll give you a dollar if you do <laughs> a dollar. Okay. Well, that's totally not worth it, but okay. I'll give you a $2 bill, $2 bill. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and and the guarantee I won't get caught by Russians. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, what I think, though, is that I know that there's a space between them, but I don't think it's as wide. That's where I think it's yeah. just for the show. You know, I think it's so small that right. you wouldn't actually be able, unless you like laid on your side or something. But I think you would probably get stuck. But yeah, Robin made it look good. Even if it was that wide, I don't think it would be that smooth where you could just like slide down. And what was stopping the Russians from not just sliding on down after her, you know? <laughs> Or walking down the stairs. I mean, oh, true. <laughs> the escalator is not broken when it stops working. Mitch Hedberg, the right. stand-up comedian, would tell you that that is not the case. I like an escalator, man, because the escalator can never break. It can only become stairs. <laughs> All right. There would, there would never be a escalator temporarily out of order sign only an escalator temporarily stairs <laughs> sorry for the convenience it's still usable <laughs> right. it just doesn't right. move you automatically lazy bones <laughs> yeah so then we're back at the fair alex is alexi not alex alexi is killing it at the dark game <laughs> And he ends up winning yes. the big prize, which is Woody Woodpecker. I have done this once where I've gone to a theme oh. park and I've won a large stuffed tune of some kind. It was a, it was a Marvin the Martian and it was with the oh. 
the bottles that you would throw rings. You'd have plastic rings. Oh, I got sure. it like on the eighth yep. one. Had two buckets, got it on my eighth one by chance. My buddy next to me went through both of his big buckets and then all of my buckets and still didn't get it. So clearly wow. the the odds were forever in my favor, but not in his. And so I walked away with a Marvin the Martian and he walked away with a sad face. Nice. I was like Alexi in this case. Yeah. <laughs> Well, like I feel like because you remember Murray says all the games are rigged and, and Alexi is clearly a, a very intelligent scientist. And I feel like he's using science to figure out the proper arc to throw the dart so it'll hit just the right spot and pop the balloon. Like it's only somebody of his intellect that could possibly beat this game. But like the average person who just yeah. like chucks the dart at the board is not going to mm-hmm. do very well. And therefore it feels rigged. But yeah, I, I like that he kind of proves Murray wrong when he says they're they're not rigged they're not rigged (laughs) and that he has an audience around him that's like really cheering him on like yeah there's like a little kid too is like (laughs) yeah (laughs) but he doesn't get the witty woodpecker alexi's like this is my prize and i'm gonna take it yeah (laughs) unfortunately hawkins terminator enters with a gun and shoots alexi like this was like an immediate sad moment for me i'm like what no i know no 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 I'm just now starting to like Alexi, and you're shooting him? Duffers, what are you doing? I know. And I think they shot him through the Woody Woodpecker, through the stuffed Woody, which, like, doubled the, the kind of muffled the sound even, I mean, he Mm -hmm. had a silencer on, but, yeah. And then he also waited for, like, a balloon to pop, so he had, like, (laughs) three ways of concealing the fact that he just murdered somebody right in the middle of the, the, what do they call it? The throughway. The the midway. The midway. Midway. I, I call it the midway. The fairway, the throughway, the wrong way. <laughs> the wrong way. That was the wrong way for the Alexi, hard way. Apparently. Yeah. But then, yeah. <laughs> Should have stayed in the car. <laughs> Should have stayed in the car, but you then couldn't be American and win prizes. That's true. He got to be American for like 20 minutes and really enjoy it. 20 minutes. He didn't even get yeah. a corn dog, man. I mean, come on. Oh, no. Or hot dog on a stick. I don't know if that's what no. it's called. I think it's only hot dog and a stick in the mall. I think at the ah. fun fair, it's a corn dog. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, it makes, <laughs> makes total sense. Yeah. wonder what it would be at the no movie idea. theater. Maybe. A... <laughs> <laughs> We're laughing, but <laughs> Alexi's dead. It's a sad. It no, really yeah. is a sad scene. It, he's a very likable yeah. character. And mm-hmm. I could totally have seen him becoming an American citizen, essentially, you know, defecting and being a huge ally for our heroes in the series. His name doesn't but, even start with a B. No, you're right. It's not Belexi. Birnoff. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so Murray attempts to help him and ends up carrying him off the midway and then goes yeah. to get help. This is where he finds Hopper and Joyce. They spot Russian Terminator along with another baddie. And then there's this like odd exchange for Karen and her husband as they're getting off the Gravitron. Her husband says, Well, it's like they say, someone for everyone. you know, in his own <laughs> ridiculous way. As we've talked about this, I think the look that she gives really sort of encompasses the feeling we have about him as a whole. Like, she's yeah. just like, really? I gave up Billy for that's, you? Yeah, that's all you have. <laughs> that's all you can say. Yeah. Yeah, it's so. like everything's a cliche out of his mouth. Like, he doesn't offer anything of value to any conversation. It's just this kind of regurgitation of useless information. I don't know. It's, it's not thoughtful. It's not thoughtful. It's no. just like just quotes and not even meaningful quotes. Right. Just like what you feel is 
good in the moment, but just doesn't have any thought behind it. And I think that's why it comes across so just dumb because yeah. he just but, doesn't have any kind of purpose behind it. But I think it's so intentional, which is what makes it great, makes him almost a great character is that it's so they've intentionally designed his character to be this way through the di- the yeah. li- little dialogue that he has and his just his performance the way the actor embodies him through the clothes that he wears his behavior all of it it just creates like even though we make fun of him he's a kind of fully formed character <laughs> in this series he is yeah he's a character that we can clearly define and I think there's real right. value in that. I, we talk a lot about complex characters and how when we're looking at villains, we don't want them to be flat. But there is some value right. in a flat character in relationship to others because they help sort of accentuate the roundness of the characters around him. So, for instance, Ted Wheeler accentuates the complexity of Karen Wheeler, who for the longest time in two and a half seasons has not had a lot to do. And her only sort of push has been this whole thing with Billy and then her conversation with Nancy. And so when we look at those things in relationship to her husband, it just sort of amplifies how she's like, yeah, this was the regretful decision I made was to marry this guy for reasons that really don't have ultimate fulfillment. Yes. Financial security is great, but am I really satisfied with my life? And that just kind of echoes back into her conversation with Nancy. So he does have value beyond comic relief. I think he's got that for sure. But I think Mm -hmm. think you're absolutely right that the way that they've sort of put his character in this series helps to sort of amplify those around him to help us understand their plight a little bit more. Right. And again, they don't make him into like a wife beater or a drunk or anything really horrible. It's just like a very subtle, not fully there, not the sort of supportive husband that Mrs. Wheeler needs and wants and that she kind of settled for him perhaps because again, she'd wanted the financial comfort and security of his good family that he came from. Yeah. So Hopper lures the Russians to the funhouse. I remember this particular attraction. Even as recently as last year, we went to the state fair and there was one of these that I was too was old it that to go big? on, unfortunately. Like three stories like that? Um, it looked really this large. One was two. This one was two. Okay. But I do remember some of the elements that were inside. I remember the punching bags or the heavy bags mm. and then the house of mirrors and then the weird ladder. There's also, in the one that I've been on, has like a rotating, like a hamster wheel that you're trying to walk through in That's like cool. <laughs> similar to that scene in, at the end of Greece where, you know, they're using it for, right. you know, a, a set yeah. piece. So yeah, there was a lot of familiarity with this. And I like how the Duffers used this set piece to really create a really fun battle. He uses yeah. the the heavy bags or the slightly heavy bags because they're not as big to take out one of the bad guys, grabs his gun. And then in the Hall of Mirrors, this has been done several times. I remember it being done in um, Enter the Dragon. It was a great scene, Enter the Dragon, Mm -hmm. where they use this. And I always wonder about the challenge of the camera work that goes into a scene like this, because you have to take into account reflection. So what's glass, what's mirror? And it's just really, really impressive how you can suspend that sort of disbelief, as we've talked about before, and be the eyes of someone watching this as if there's no camera there. We talked about this a little bit like on our Chernobyl podcast about how the camera at one point becomes a third person point of view 
or a first person point of view, but a third person who's interacting or sort of interacting with the scene. It's not happening here, but still, I think the camera work is so great because you don't think about the camera. Like, oh, I don't see the camera in the corner here. Like I'm watching episodes of Melrose Place and I'm always kind of noticing, oh, there's the boom mic coming down. I see it just a little bit. So the care taken for scenes like this to really create drama and also be very technically savvy enough to not show us the actual camera itself, which is, I think, incredibly difficult. Yeah, and the truth is that in, in the era of CG, in most scenes like this, they actually have to go through the painstaking work of digitally removing the camera from these scenes. And okay. there's a lot, a lot of directors talk about this. I know James Gunn has talked about it with the show um, Peacemaker, how his uh, his helmet is so reflective that anytime they shoot him, you see the camera. So an, a digital artist has to remove the camera from every shot. Wow. Anytime there's chrome, anytime there's mirrors, unless you're being really creative with the placement of the camera, which they, of course, used to do prior to the world of CGI and digital artistry. Yeah, now they just they just shoot it and just take it out and post. And it that's kind of, it maybe it ruins the illusion a little bit, but... <laughs> That's the only, I mean, if you look at some of the shots, like you're looking straight on, as you said, if you are the camera, you're looking straight at one of the actor's reflections. There's no way a camera could be there without right. taking it out, without removing it. So I'd love to see a behind the scenes look at that particular scene to see what they actually did. It would be really, yeah, that would be a great. I think there's something impressive about both of those. Like you could make the argument that, oh, it's CG, you know, they're just using CG. Yeah. yeah. And they're removing the thing there. I mean, that takes right. effort. So there's just it's as much so value much work. In. Yeah. So there's, there's a level of respect on, on both those levels, on both those approaches. Yeah. Definitely. Well, Hopper gets the upper hand as they're going through this house of mirrors and he shoots him, but a la Doc Brown, Bulletproof Fest, he is not killed. Or Terminator, like it's just the thing just keeps getting back sure. up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I need your clothes, your boots, your motorcycle, and your bulletproof vest. That's what it is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then Hopper realizing that uh, he did not take that guy down, he instead takes the epic slide down and catches a ride yes. with Joyce and Murray. Intercut with this scene, Joyce is going to find Alexi and this is where she finds him dead on oh, a sad face. Yeah. They're walking back to the car. She and Murray are, she makes the time. Joyce makes the time to deck Klein and kick him <laughs> in the gonads before leaving, which I thought was just like, okay, I guess she's just like fed up. This is like parent teacher yeah. Joyce who's going off on a, on a bender here by just wailing on Klein for a couple of good shots there. I love that you use the word gonads. <laughs> well, I'm glad I made you laugh. That was <laughs> Yeah, that's good. I haven't heard that term in a while. So it's uh Well, we're in yeah. an eighties eighties show, so maybe I just take it. That's back right, a bit. yeah. Maybe not quite to the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> Makes me think of uh yeah. did you see Monster Squad? You ever see Monster Squad? Oh yeah. I yep. One of the lines that sticks out from the trailer that made a lot of people, myself included, is a scene where a kid literally like does the same thing that Joyce does to Klein to a wolfman. And the line right. after it is, Wolfman's got an art. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Obviously, they hop in the car and 
the getaway car and they they're off to well first just escape this fun fair where clearly there are evil russians shooting <laughs> and trying to kill them but they of course now have one of the russian walkie-talkies and that's going to be very helpful for them and thankfully murray is able to translate what's being said and they find out of course that the kids or the children are in the mall keep all the entrances locked down so that's uh clearly going to bring them to intersect with all the children in the finale. Yeah. Well, if you're not going to be at the fair, you're going to have to be at the mall. That's where you are as children. These are right. those two places. So then we are at the mall. <laughs> as the camera is panning in, we see the Russians and they're sort of elusively moving around very quietly. I see that car, that big car displayed. And I'm like, that's going to come into play at some point, I feel like, because you're hanging yeah. on it, Duffers. You're just going to it's there for a reason. Then just, yeah, you don't just put something in a scene for no reason. It's Chekhov's Mustang is what that is right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Russians eventually find the four, the quartet, and they slowly go towards them. But just as they get close, the car alarm goes off, the car comes alive, and then L flings it across the mall, killing the Russians. And the gang is reunited. The shot above the pan up to the top of like, we're oh, here. So good. It's us, e pluris unum, right here. Even though that's not the name of the episode. Yeah, this great, like, it was like a crane shot. It kind of pulls up and goes right into Elle's face. And it's like, you know, she's in hero stance with the, with the music. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a great, really cool moment. And so they're all catching up. Everyone's talking about everything that's happened, Russian superpowered girls, a cracked code. Really, it's a summary statement of everything that we've experienced as an audience. Right. Elle walks away. She's looking sick, and then she collapses. She's holding her ears. So I think the noise that I'm hearing at this point, I don't need headphones for this, she apparently is hearing it. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like her head was going to explode. Uh, no, I didn't think that. <laughs> and then she collapses. They come over. And they look at her leg, and it's basically become more than infected. It's been mm-hmm. invaded. And that's how the, the episode <laughs> leaves us. All right, there we are. Yep. It's <laughs> all, but it's button. all converging on this location of the mall, the, of the Starcourt Mall. What's interesting, too, about this, as you mentioned, they're all, the gang is united now for the first time, really, in seven episodes. That's what's interesting to me is that if you think about it, most of these actors, even though they're in the same show together, they haven't been acting together for like 90% of the season. They're all like in right. their little cliques, like little mini groups. But you sort of think, oh, they must all be best friends. But no, they're not actually performing together on the same set or probably at the same time. They're all right. have different shoot schedules, different windows, different locations. So they're all essentially shooting their own shows that are independent of one another. And they probably don't even know that much about what the other actors scenes involve because of secrecy. I know when Matthew talked about his, he would get his pages, but he didn't know the context of any of his lines, like beyond the basic, sort of the basic premise. So I think it's, uh, it's funny to think about that. Like we are following all these characters throughout their parallel adventures, but the actors haven't been together at all in this whole season, really. I think that creates a level of genuineness of the acting between them because maybe they're all really excited to see each other because they haven't interacted (laughs) in a couple of months. I will add that this is, what, seven for seven, that both 
Robin and Steve have been in their <laughs> Scoops Ahoy outfits. So that's true. <laughs> I don't know yep. how long this thing is filmed, but they may set a record for the most consecutive episodes wearing the same outfit in a TV series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're, uh, yeah, they, those outfits are not in the best of condition. As Steve pointed yeah. out, he, there's vomit on them and they, he's been sliding around the bathroom floor in them and there's blood on them. It's, yeah, he's, he can, you know, listen, there's a whole mall. He should change into something more comfortable at this point. Just steal something. It's probably open. (laughs) There's no alarms on anything. Just open the door and go. Clearly. You're fine. I think you've earned it. You have, Steve. Treat Robin to a nice outfit that you won't pay for, (laughs) even though you can, you rich boy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for us on this edition of an original series. We are at the finale of season three. Adam, what's coming up next? Yeah, it's uh, entitled Chapter 8, The Battle of Starcourt, which is a really cool title. And it's, uh, I like it. I think, pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> There's going to be a finale, a battle here at Starcourt Mall. It's also, as I mentioned, written and directed by the Duffer Brothers. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's basically the second part of a two-part finale. And I think we mentioned it's, we may, may or may not have mentioned, but it's a it's like a supersized episode as well. So a little longer yeah. than the average episode. 80 minutes. And I'm going to try yeah. to get through 40 of those 80 a, before I... It's almost a feature, you know, it's close. Yeah. A short feature. It would be feature. considered a, a bad movie at that length, which I think is kind of unfair <laughs> right. to think that like that a comedy usually yeah. equates to quality. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a yeah. comedy. Everybody's going to be laughing like <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna be like, ha, 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 my injury. It's funny. Look at that thing coming out of my leg. <laughs> some some musical nu- dance numbers. Yeah, yeah. There we go. I mean, with Steve and Robin, you know, getting a little uh, sing off in the bathroom, I could see a little uh, number coming from them. And they're scooping their way out. Stranger Things, the musical. It's come. It's happening. It's real. <laughs> Well, thank you everyone for tuning in and joining this conversation. I'm Patch, he's Adam, and we are out of here.